Hey nerds, how are you doing? It's Ryan here from Into the Wild. Um, I just want to give you a little message before the show plays. Now, usually at the beginning of each episode, I'll do a little voiceover that just says, we do swear in the show, so if you're a young nerd, make sure you tell your parents you're listening, and if you're a nerd that doesn't really like swearing, we apologise in advance. But this time I'm going to say, we might swear a bit more than usual in the first 15 minutes of the episode, and that's partly because myself and Nadia recorded this 24 hours after the net zero speech from Rishi Stunak. So we had a few feelings inside that we had to release to the world. (laughs) My apologies for some foul language. The worst ones are censored, but we were feeling very angry, very frustrated and, and and a bit in despair about the situation in the UK. Um, So we do apologise for that, but I hope, nevertheless, you enjoy the show. Let's go. Hi, Nadia. Hi. You okay? (laughs) Why are you cackling like a witch? (laughs) I don't know. It was the way you swung your face to me. I did swing my face, didn't I? The listeners don't get to see how kind of like Disney Prince Charming I can be sometimes. (laughs) Yeah, I would say... 28% 28% of Ryan's communication is embodied. <laughs> it's non-vocal. Do you know what? You're spot on. I would, I would have said 28% as well. Would you? Yeah. Although saying that, since since we've been having this very discussion, I've barely moved my body. I know. I've, I've suddenly gone hyper alert to it. Yeah. Hey, swing about like a tree. Swing about. Just move. Why don't people move when they talk? Be- be a willow. <laughs> You'd be a willow. I would be. A, a I would be a willow, wouldn't I? Yeah. Yeah. Or one of those like North American red pine, the really tall ones. No, it's not billowy enough. That was the most Geordie thing you've ever said. <laughs> <laughs> that was the strongest your Geordie accent's ever been. <laughs> Say it again. Billowy. <laughs> Wait. What, what tree would I be? <laughs> what tree? I feel like it's just going to be. I don't. What tree would you be? You'd be. And you know what? You're going to take this as a compliment. It is a compliment, but I, I genuinely see you as being an oak. <gasps> I do take that as a compliment. Yeah. Yeah. You're yeah very... I like to be home for over 300 insects. <laughs> <laughs> I told you to get a cream for that. <laughs> oh, Sorry. I actually, I went for a walk earlier and um, I got in the mud and. Shoes off, put my socks back on, and then I got back and I was like, oh, something's not right. Like in between every tour, you, there was like a whole ecosystem. <laughs> oh, it's disgusting. <laughs> it wasn't disgusting. It's just river mud. Oh, oh, it's just river mud. <laughs> well, in England, that's not a good thing. <laughs> no, it's not. That's anyway. Just shit. So, nerds, it's lovely to be chatting to you again to bring you a brand new episode. We're going to start where myself and Nadia always start with a bit of nature news. Um, mm-hmm. So let's go in to some nice naturey news now. So my bit in nature news that I'd like to share, well, I say I'm going to share it, actually I'm going to bring in someone that's going to deliver it way better than I could, um, is Emma Brisdian from the River Trust. Um, the River Trust have got an awesome new citizen science campaign, which does many, it ticks so many boxes. It gets you down to your local patch, it gets you connected to your river, gets you looking about what's going on, but also you get to review the river, see what's down there, see how much litter, see what pollution, see what wildlife, and you get to give them that data so they can see a mass report of what's going on currently in our UK rivers. Um, but like I said, I'm not going to tell you too much about it because here is Emma from the River Trust to tell us a bit more. Hello, Ryan, Nadia, and Into the Wild listeners. I'm here to chew your ear off momentarily about the Big River Watch from the Rivers Trust. So healthy rivers are, I mean, essential for thriving wildlife, but they're also really important for us as communities, whether we live near them, enjoy them recreationally, or we're plumbed into Maine's water. So essentially all of us, you know, whether we live in cities or towns or the countryside, we're all affected by the health of our rivers. However, we also know that no rivers in England or Northern Ireland are in good condition, and that's mirrored across all of the UK and Ireland. So to fight for better for our rivers, we need a clear picture of what and where the issues are. So at the Rivers Trust, we've created the Big River Watch. It is a super easy citizen science survey that anyone in the UK and Ireland can get involved in. 
All you need to do is download the free app, head to your local river or perhaps explore somewhere new and just spend 15 minutes watching and answering around 20 questions on things like pollution, plants, wildlife and watercolour. The survey is open year round so you can just let us know what your river looks like at any time. All of this monitoring data from your surveys will be used to identify places for river restoration projects, but it'll also be available for communities or scientists or journalists or ENGOs to support their work or strengthen their demands of decision makers clamouring for better river protection. And to be honest, it's a gosh darn lovely reason to go outside and spend a little bit of time ogling your local river and your wildlife. That's the Big River Watch. Hope you enjoy it. Thanks, guys. Wow. I like stuff like that. I love Isn't that citizen science. Yeah, I think it's like Emma said, it's a lovely way to just go. You can go for a walk and you can just go and sit by your river for a bit and you can actually just answer a few questions and know that you're, you're helping. That can be your bit for the day if that's all you want to do. I want to, for those people that want to take a step further, please have a swim. Please do so. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely get in. Yeah. I mean, take a look at the Outdoor Swimming Society, the OSS website. They are absolutely fab human beings doing really good stuff to encourage people to swim. Um, so let's do that too. Nice, yeah. So thanks, uh, Emma, from the River Trust and thanks for the River Trust for creating such a awesome citizen science campaign like that. I love stuff like this. I just think it's a lovely way to connect people to their local area and their wildlife. It's great, isn't it? Um, yeah. So I believe you have a bit of nature news as well. What do you want to... Well, actually, mine is linked. Mine is also... Riverine. Riverine? Is that a word? I know, I, I thought, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> um, river, what is the word for something that's associated with rivers? I don't know. Well, what I've got to share is also something to do with the river. <laughs> and it's actually not, it's not news. It is not news. Again, it's old. This but, is the worst um, was... intro to any story ever. I'm so sorry. Welcome to okay. Nature News, everyone. Well, here's mine. It's old and it's not really news. <laughs> <laughs> well, what is new in nature, really? It's been around for a long time. Look at her trying to dig her way out of that. I'm digging. I'm digging. Um, basically, no, I was just having this chat with somebody today and it reminded me to go look into it a little bit more because I found it interesting, which is this is uh, the commitment in Paris that they've made to clean up the Seine River ready for the Olympics next year. All right, okay. So, like, incredible project to... Because at the moment, it's really polluted and you can't swim in it. They want to make this huge, big, famous river that runs through Paris, which is an incredibly polluted city, clean enough to swim in and actually for it to become commonplace once again that the public recreationally can just be walking along, you know, go into a, you know, have a... Get some... (laughs) You're trying to be... Yeah, you're trying to be really French here, aren't you? You know, know, just I'm... take your garlic swath from around your neck, <laughs> stop with the mime and get in. Mime your way into the <laughs> river. Put the accordion down for two seconds. If you not... <laughs> Make sure you take a couple of baguettes for... Can for I just say, I'm so sorry to all our French listeners. <laughs> all of them. All of them. They're very silent. Um, bonjour. Um, no, but actually... Um, so they are they're spending millions and millions and millions to create some underground pipe systems so that mm. um, when it rains really heavily, the water doesn't just go directly into the river itself. It actually goes into these underground systems, which then can go be clean to get rid of all the bacteria before oh, wow. it can go back into the river. But it's just, I think what it is, is, is because of this, the Olympics being a really, it's given a time frame basically that they have to hit. It's actually given a really hard set goal um, that when when you are put up against it and you have a really ambitious project, amazing things can be done. Amazing things seemingly like, you're never going to clean, you know, I think we can probably sit here and go, you know, I'm going to clean up the Thames here. But actually, these huge things in really urban areas where there's a heat load of pollution can be done, um, you know, if we did actually want to hit our deadlines, um, because a lot of our nature targets are just these random dates that never get hit. Why are you laughing at me for? I'm laughing I find it really because you're absolutely right. But as you say this, yesterday our prime minister went, "Well, let's delay that by ten years. <laughs> let's well, delay that by well, five years." Well, exactly. <laughs> like you've just sorry. Are we? I can't carry on with yours. Sorry. I'm... No, my story's pretty much done. What I think, I, it's probably not perfect, but in terms of like scale and ambition. That's pretty big to be like, oh, we're just going to clean it yeah. up and make it swimmable again. 
Absolutely. And and like you said, having that deadline going, it benefits so much. And having that deadline to work towards means even if, even if they didn't reach the deadline, but they did something, it's still better than never trying to reach the deadline. Do you know what I mean? You can improve yeah. it to a percentage without nailing it 100%. And you've still done some yeah. good and continue. So yeah. it's, yeah, it, it, I love stuff like that. And it's a huge challenge. And it would be, it'd be incredible if they pulled that off. Absolutely incredible. Yeah. It shows, I think, but it would show up as the... possible. Well, showing literally cities now, like in America, are going, they're interested to watch how they've done it so they can replicate it. Yeah, it's yeah, just innovative and, you know, raise the bar. Come on. That's leading. <laughs> I might even watch the Olympics because of it. I'm not going to watch I like the, Olympics, the rowing. But I'm going to watch oh. the process of them cleaning the river. <laughs> <laughs> right, I'm done. <laughs> do you not enjoy the rowing? Because the boats do this. Yes, it is tense. <laughs> Sorry for everybody listening. You can't see what I just did. Um, okay, the last, so Ryan, the last bit of news. Oh, the last bit of news that we... Oh, we have to, I want to talk about, because if I don't talk about it, it's like I need to go through therapy with it, was our prime minister in the UK yesterday gave a fairly unannounced, like not, it turns out not many MPs knew this was going to happen. And he's certainly with the content. Um, uh, Rishi Sunak has, um, he's not U-turned, he's delayed a lot of, net zero policies that were set in place um, to help us reach net zero. He said those things that were put in place would not work. He said that those things put in place would put the cost onto us, the British public, um, and he doesn't believe... His speech, if you... And genuinely, I will say this on my heart. When you listen to it, you would go, oh, he's talking a lot of sense. This, this... Yeah. Do you know what? I actually... I got a bit of that. Do you know what? He sounds like he cares. Do you know what? That's really true. Why should I have to pay 10 grand for a new boiler? You're right. Why should I can't afford an electric car? But this is how gaslighting works. He has manipulated you with changing or not giving you all the information and also adding in random things that weren't ever a, a policy or anything to make you look like he's the good guy. We're scrapping your seven bins. We're scrapping more people having to be in your car. These were never, these might have been muttered as suggestions from a non-government committee as advisories, but they were never government policies that were put on the table. But he has told us they were, and he's told us he scrapped them. So at that point there, we know he is misleading us. So when you start to look into the other information he said about, you know, um, I'll delay the ban on sales of petrol and diesel cars until 2035, you could still, that's not the ban, that's a ban of sale of new cars. You can still buy a secondhand petrol and diesel car after 2035. You can do that. You just can't buy new cars. And let's be honest, what's the actual percentage of people in the UK, UK that buy a brand new car? Many yeah, of people, us buy secondhand. And the people that can yeah. afford to, can afford to buy an electric vehicle yeah. and keep it running. The cost of running an electric vehicle, whilst the systems in place to charge are still not bullet, we'll get that, but the, the, the cost of running it is so much cheaper. The cost of running a diesel on a petrol car is higher. It's high now, it's going to get higher. And this is the same when we start to look at the boilers within our house as well. If we are running them on energy um, types that are costing us a lot of money now, why would we want to continue that? Why aren't the polluters paying for us to be able to, you know, I don't know, have the cost to put heat pumps in every single house or stuff like that? Where, where is their paying for their debt? It's, it shouldn't, he's right, it shouldn't be on us, but it's also not on us. I, I, yeah, just, yeah, yeah. That, that, yeah, I don't know. That seemed really contained for how angry you are. I'm very angry. He's an yeah. absolute... It's ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. There's absolutely zero will, want and ambition to do anything at the scale of what we need to be done. And actually, you know, people will have noticed over the last few years the massive ramping up of electric EV like charging points. That is because of investment based on this target. And when you start removing, when you start like saying, oh, you know, the target's not really real, then the investment goes for the infrastructure that's needed to make it happen. Everything else, you get mistrust and all of the systems crumble. We are going to talk about some amazing ambitious projects like we just have with the Sen. And we're going to talk about some tree related ambitious projects, which shows that when you have ambition um, and it has to be led by government, right? They are the weakest link 
in our situation here. The fact that it's reflected back onto the public as though actually what we can afford is the thing that decides whether we get out of like the biodiversity environment climate crisis is insane because the whole cost of living is absolute bullshit anyway. Think about that. Cost of living. Yeah, it takes a lot it's of so messed up. Yeah. And it's I'm I'm just I I watched I didn't have time to watch it yesterday. I was out and about and I watched it this morning or listened to it this morning and I just like I said, there was that bit where I just got sucked into it and I was like, oh he cares. But then at the same time my brain's going, you know he doesn't. And you know why this has happened. This whole this whole speech has been done. The whole misleading point is to get the swing voters to go to conservative. We know that's why. I'm not, you know, it, it's the reason why. You, you're yeah. worried that you're not going to get in. You know there's a percentage of the UK right now that aren't sure whether to go Labour or Conservative or to just do a throwaway vote to a party that might not get the full one. But we know that's going to happen. So they can get the people on the fence to fall on Conservative by going, oh, don't worry, you don't have to eat lentils. What? What? Yeah, no one. Yeah. So you just get those swing voters in and walk away and you've done it at the cost of our future, my future. I... I'm st- the, I am struggling to pay stuff right now and you are making it worse. So don't tell me you care about my where my money's going if I want to buy a car. You don't give a shit. You don't care. You, are, you, know, you just want to stay shit. in government a bit longer to help your pals, make more money and pass it on to your kids and their trust funds. Yeah, I mean, you said it beautifully. I don't need to add anything to that. He does not care about you. Anyway, okay, so that's that's not really news, but we uh, we need I needed to let some stuff out, and you're right, that was quite contained because I don't fully know how I feel about it yet. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, I, think <laughs> I think it was just I think it was just it. a really I just feel like it was a really psychopathic speech, like that faux. That, so the what we know is they don't care, and so to yeah. have our leader, and he doesn't care, he doesn't care, he doesn't no. care about people who are poor, he doesn't care the environment, doesn't care about biodiversity. He's a fucking multi multi millionaire. Of course, he doesn't. Um, you mm. couldn't have a millions and millions of pounds and care for people. You couldn't morally sit on that money without caring for people. So we know he doesn't care about people because he could, like, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, there's your first sign. And so to have him sit there and stare into the camera calmly to say it's not fair on you the when he people. knows full well that, that he can do whatever financial jiggery-pokery to have the 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 spanning of wealth between our poorest and our richest, he, they can do things about that. Mm. Yeah. So anyway, um, it's news. It's going to be news. And everyone listening to the podcast is from the UK. I'm sure many of you have been affected by it. I hope you're okay. You're not on your own. We're all feeling frustrated. We're all feeling a bit despair. We're all nearly getting behind Chris Packham and throwing a grenade near Rishi's house. We're not going to do that, but we are all feeling that kind of pressure and uh, kind of tension, I guess. Sit down, breathe, go for a walk, go for a run, whatever you need to do, and talk to people in your circle. It's, it's so frustrating, but we, we're all there together. So it's, we just wanted, me and Nadia wanted to share that as a bit of, that's, that's into the wild's take on that. Um, Hot take. Okay, so yeah, now we've shared that, we can go on to our episode. Oh my God, Nadia, shall we start the actual episode? Oh, shall we? Shall, shall we just? <laughs> shall we just? Let's go! Shall we? Nerds, what are we talking about today? Well, as Nadia said, we are going to be looking at places around the world that are doing innovative and beautifully thought through ideas to help biodiversity on the planet. And we're doing that in the form of talking about forestry management. Ooh. (laughs) Did you just stand on something? (laughs) Ooh, that was a plug. Um. So, I, Nadia, what I'll do first, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read out a bit of a definition of what forestry management is, because I feel like something in uh, wildlife conservation, I hear it a lot. What do you do? I work in forestry management. Oh, yes, you have a beard. Like, you know, that kind of vibe. But I don't really, if I was to define it, I wouldn't know. So here's what the OED says. It is the process of controlling the use or, it says exploitation of forested land. So timber companies practice sustainable forest management, for an example. So that's the kind of basic. It's the process of controlling the use of forests. Let's start with the UK. Nadia, what have we got for the UK? What, what's our forestry situation? Well, talk to me about the UK. We'll talk to me about what's, what's happening, where are we at? 
I assume we're nailing well, we it. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, we're doing really, really well. We're actually world leaders. Oh yeah, um, I mean we're well trees. leading. Yeah, yeah. Well, we're always world. It's very important to state that we are world leading. Like our net zero targets, for example. Yes. We are world leading. Obviously, Germany, France, other countries had net zero for I don't know how long away, but but we were five years ahead, which is great. Yeah. Um, not anymore. Not anymore. Um. So obviously. We just be clear. We're talking. There's two different things going on here, right? We have forestry, so forests that are grown as a crop, and then we have forest, which is kind of like naturalized forest that's just grown and regenerated in places. And you might have read about that and things happening like NEP, where they've allowed that kind of natural regeneration. And we do have some patches of ancient forest yet. We have some of the oldest ancient oak trees in Europe, many of which are found in Sherwood Forest. And then there's also areas where um, over the last few years, we recognise that we need more tree planting because we have such low tree cover in, in England in particular. And we only have about 13% at the moment and um, big efforts by kind of government and targets to, to reforest. However, tar- target's not looking so good. Um, okay. I guess. <laughs> um, so uh, good, kind good, of the, the UK target... The UK target um, was uh, targets to plant 30,000 hectares each year. And at the moment, England is on about 2,000. Um, oh. no, no, yeah, about, about 2,000 a year. So falling short of the 30,000 there. But the UK as a whole in 2022 planted 13,000 hectares, which is, which is less than half of our annual target. And just trying to put it into which a little is bit still of context. less. <laughs> It's like, not, it's not that, no, is it? It's not, no. Um, I've just got to thank Project Earth here for the little bit of research that I've got from those guys about it. So in the UK, 540 hectares are planted with trees yearly, which is just over <laughs> 1,300 football fields, um, which is... What? Is that, is that was, roughly a quarter of the size of Wales? <laughs> about a quarter of the size of Wales, um, <laughs> <laughs> which is no point, no, 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 no. How many blue whales um, is it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Nose to nose, how many red buses, red <laughs> London buses? <laughs> I'm so sorry, nerds. Um, we are in despair. I don't know. We are. Um, much of the land is planted by existing landowners. So, um, so I guess, yeah. So this means let, let's. This is a little statistic here around. That means um, at the most, the annual rate of Welsh farmland being converted to woodland is about 0.054% with no sign of ramping up soon. Um, so yeah, the whole, over like over the whole of the UK, 76% of land is still agricultural. There is often this fear that there's too much tree planting going on. There really isn't. <laughs> Don't worry about it. Um, we're not going to just be in a complete coast-to-coast woodland anytime soon. So, you know, we largely acknowledge that tree planting is really good for biodiversity. Like our deciduous native trees, our beautiful oaks, ash, birch, beach and all of these fantastic trees that we know and love so well it's kind mm. of this this replanting scheme to kind of get get some of our biodiversity back also acknowledging that it you know provides a carbon sink for the carbon drinking that we need to do from the atmosphere so yeah i mean we're, we're not great really in terms of what we've got there's some great patches of woodlands there's lots of small replanting schemes but in terms of something big and ambitious in terms of meeting those big targets and really you know connecting up the pockets of woodland that we've got that need to be reconnected back up again. It's not really happening at the scale that we need it to happen. Um, and also, famously, trees grow really slow. Famously so. So we, this is something we kind of need to get on sooner rather than later, I yeah. guess. Be something, <laughs> well. um, Prime Minister, we won't want to delay on. <laughs> I mean, shall we go? <laughs> I think um, that's, I, I think it's very true what you said there as well, because we, we I, I mean, Already in this episode, me and Nadia have kind of like laughed at the UK quite a lot. Um, there's a lot of hypocrisy. There's a lot of kind of ridiculous statements that come out about us being world leading. And then when we look at the actual 
you know, we're a week away from our state of nature report coming out and, you know, a few of us have had glimpses of that and and we know what that's going to be and we know it's going to be bad news. So it's quite hard for me and Nadia on this show sometimes to sit there and have optimism about the UK, about whether it's the targets we've got, the targets we're not reaching or just, or, or the, the negative side that we're going down rather than even heading towards our targets. It's quite hard for us to have that optimism and, and level of pride with our country and our nation um, to about yeah. what we're doing. But we can't take away that whilst I personally don't believe little pockets of great work is the big solution, we're not going to take away that there are little pockets of the UK of community forestry projects or, um, you know, like NEP Estate and stuff that are doing incredible work restoring nature, restoring this kind of ecosystems that were once lost, showing that there are ways to do it. Um, But like Nadia said, it's it's about something more than that. Rather than having these little pockets, it's how do we connect the forests that are there now together and not just for the forest, but for the people that live around it. How can we start to look at how other nations are living and working around the world that are doing way, way more ambitious things specifically to do with forestry and, and, and their forest cover and tree cover and stuff? How can we take on that kind of culture and that kind of mindset that we probably once had back in, you know, a few hundred years ago? Um, how can we reinstate that? How can we reinstate that and keep going? Yeah, definitely. And I think crucially, what we'll probably learn in this episode as well is that this kind of work is still happening in the absence of like wider community engagement and wider kind of public participation. Um, it is these like one-off little pockets where it might be a company is paid to do some tree planting because it's offset, but they've got, you know, the government grant to do the tree planting. And it's all just really disjointed, like little things everywhere. And it's it's still feeling not like something that as a, as a, as a nation, as a country, we can get behind and have this really massive, ambic- ambitious, like, we want our woodlands back and connected in good health again. It doesn't necessarily feel like that. That being said, if you are listening and you work in kind of like agroforestry and forestry, and if you are one of our amazing hobby naturalists who, you know, works in and studies ancient oak trees and forests, you are brilliant. But I think I something part of me just feels like our ambition is lacking. I mean, it is. It actually is. I think sometimes we're scared to take that big leap. Maybe if we look at our government as well, that, whether they're scared I don't know if I'm giving them too much credit of emotion there but I think maybe they're nervous of losing support by making these big ambitious goals of going we need these changes to happen so there's that, that fear of loss in regards to party support but then you know like you said earlier the 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 time for considering it and slowing down went about 20 years ago it has to be I mean even our prime minister said in his speech yesterday the time for controversial decisions is now and we have to do it and these and but but not quite the way he decided to do so um we should we bring in um our guest for the uk speaking yes the now award-winning wainwright prize for conservation oh, writing. yes congrats award well done winning writer oh god i hope that's the right award i think it's for conservation <laughs> Guy Shrubsall, author of Lost Rainforests of Britain. Um, I got in touch and asked if he would give us a little bit of a history about what's about forestry in the UK. And and he did. Here we go. Well, I suppose it starts about 10,000 years ago with the end of the last ice age. And obviously we've got Britain probably mostly covered in trees and forests, even uh, back then, even if it's the wildwood, as it was then called, or has been called since, uh, that it was probably more of a mosaic of habitats with lots of areas of open glades and bogs and swamps and wildfire meadows and so on in between them but it was certainly a lot more uh, a lot more tree cover back then than today spool forwards maybe 5000 years to um the bronze age and you have um in the late neolithic and through to the bronze age you have humanity starting to settle in britain cutting down the trees a big period of deforestation um Spool forward again through to the Romans. You've still got ongoing clearance, particularly taking out all of the trees in the upland areas, some of the big moorland areas that we have seen form, um, peat bogs that have formed uh, as a result of slight shifts in climate, but also deforestation leading to the formation of peat instead, which is you know good in some ways, but obviously a very different habitat. But then also periods of perhaps resurgence of trees and forests as well. You know, so for, for example, when the Romans left Britain, the end of the Roman Empire, some people have said there was a, a slight recovery in tree cover as there was a sort of reduction in um, intensity of agriculture. And similarly, come a few centuries later um, with things like the Black Death, 
By the time of the Norman Conquest, which is 1066, and then they do their famous Doomsday Book survey of the landscape of England, um, records that from, from that time suggest that England was perhaps 15% woodland cover by then, possibly a little bit more because the Domesday survey doesn't really cover um, places like Northumberland and Cumbria, which you might have expected to have been perhaps more heavily wooded as well. So maybe 15, 20% woodland cover of England at that time, about a thousand years ago. And then unfortunately, from then down to about 1900, it's again a story of uh, pretty much continuous descent in tree cover and forest cover, um, with a f occasional bits of you know resurgence again around kind of area, time of plague and you know disease and destruction and death when there's been a retreat from of human civilization really. Things start to turn around a bit with the invention of things like modern forestry in the sense of people trying to encourage tree planting, starting with someone like John Silver. Um, sorry, not John Silver, <laughs> John Evelyn, who wrote the book Silver in the 17th century. He was like an early environmentalist in some ways, advocating planting of trees, but principally for timber, not for a sort of their own, you know, trees for their own sake in a kind of deep ecological sense. And then that carries on through to the uh, start of the 20th century when you've got this formation of the Forestry Commission in 1919, you know, this real drive to try and end the shortage of timber in England because it's got, got to about uh, kind of 5% woodland cover, I think, probably across the UK by then, kind of ridiculously low. During the 20th century, there is actually a big increase in forest cover across the UK from 5% um, of England to 10% of England, which is what we are, we're at now, more or less. And But of course, a lot of what that has involved has been um, planting of, plant, of conifer plantations rather than um, species-rich deciduous woodland. And one of the worst things I think that's happened in the last hundred years, of course, has been the conversion of a huge amount of our uh, remaining ancient woodland to plantations. So even, even within the 20th century, when there's been a growth in tree cover, there's been huge losses of biodiversity from our forests as a result of some of those, uh, at the time, in, well-intentioned, but actually deeply misguided forestry practices. Hope that helps. Cheers. Bye. Well, Guy, I can say that absolutely does help. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it does. Thank you so much. And I did. I didn't realise what, what an effort to cover the history of trees. I know. <laughs> Hi, Guy. You got two minutes. Go. No, I didn't realise we were so low so so long ago as well. I thought a thousand years ago would have been way higher than that. Yeah, we went low. Okay. Yeah. Go on. What are your thoughts? I think it's really interesting that actually in the 20th century, even this recent, when we kind of know about biodiversity and how important it is, there was still like, we should probably plant more fast growing productive wood, like forestry still f things up. Um, even kind of, if you feel like 20th century, you feel quite close mm. to the humans in the 20th century, almost like early 20th century, I guess, late yeah. 19th century. But actually, I mean, obviously industrial revolution, like lots of needing to like the use of materials, but yeah, it's such a shame, so recent in history to have lost so much. But I know we're losing wildlife all the time. There's just something about the age of trees that makes us, me think about the time differently as, as other practices, I guess, for management of materials. Like trees have just been around for a long, you know, you know our ancient trees are five, six, seven hundred years old. It's a long time ago. And, and also, I mean, Guy did mention right at the top, like, you know, there was a time when, you know, post Ice Age, we would have been covered in trees. But then he said, you know, there would have been space for marshalling and bits and bobs. Mm. I think there is still a dispute as to like how much tree cover would we have been? Could a squirrel have gone from Penzance all the way up to John Groats? Maybe, I don't know. But And if they um, did, were they sponsored to do so? Were they doing it for a yeah, charity? Yeah, why were they were, doing why that? Were they doing because that? it's a long... Yeah, <laughs> so... <laughs> the question isn't would they, the question is why would they? Why? What's the motivation? <laughs> well, there must have been nuts on the way. That was surely. one tasty nut. Um, uh, um, yeah, so it was more likely a squirrel from the north decided to go to warmer climbs. Is it? Potentially. Is it? I don't know. Is it? Is that more um, likely? Frozen nuts aren't a good thing. Well, you're preaching to the choir there, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't know. That um, is my reason for not getting in the sea on Butte in December. <laughs> <laughs> there's, because there's no tree cover to get you home. Exactly. You Nothing to do with the frozen from nuts. Branch to branch. <laughs> I don't know what we're talking about anymore. I don't know I what joke I'm in. Hit. But um, no, I, I, like, um, yeah, and 
I'm thinking about all of the different ways that we've needed trees throughout history, you know, yeah. all of like industrial revolution or not even that, just like not even industrial revolution, like the, the amount of ovens and stuff that used to be fueled by bread, the amount of wood as fuel that needed to be burnt every day for the way that we kind of used to live to, you know, in different kinds of furnaces or ovens to cook, to make things, to melt metal. This is all kind of wood fueled, presumably, or, or there was a time, I don't know, maybe yeah. I'm, I'm not a historian, but just... Trees have always been centre to how we live our lives in this country. I was going to say on the news the other day, about two days ago, I heard on the news, there has been, I can't remember what country in Africa, but they found like the earliest example, and we're talking like thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago, of two bits of timber where they looked like actually that's joinery. That would have been an old structure. So it's the earliest example of us actually using trees to build structures way, 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 way before we ever thought they would have done. That's, it might not even insane, be Homo it? sapiens. It might have been a different hominid species. So, like, we have used wood and needed wood and lived alongside trees being alive and cut down for a really long time. Yeah, and I think, like Guy said, the interesting thing there is, I think, like, there were forestry things that were done, you know, only a few hundred years ago that were so well-intentioned that just didn't have the right impact that we were hoping or didn't didn't quite do the right thing, whether whether it was for native tree cover or whether it was for the biodiversity that relies on it. And I think it's... It's interesting. It kind of brings us back to these little pockets that we've got now where we've started to notice that and go, well, this is what we need to now do. This is a good way to restore. And these are some of the ideas we have. And I think speaking very broadly here and maybe someone that's a, a bit naive on the topic, but... Speaking very broad-leafed. Broad-leafed, I'm speaking. <laughs> Sorry, this has, to, we have to, this has to be 100% tree puns. We've done badly if this has to be 100% tree puns. <laughs> We're half an hour, 40 minutes in, and we, that was the first pun. <laughs> Um, sorry and but I think you know we've got these little pockets of things that are are really working but our country's at a very different time now where our land use is very different and it's how do we connect those forests how do we move forward now with forestry management with all the challenges of the the culture and society that we're in now I think that's that's our big it is a big like you said it is a big ambitious challenge to do but we still have to do it. But it's just, it's going to be harder now because the way we yeah. live is way, way different than how we were living I mean, let, 100 years ago. Let's strip it down. We, we need um, native tree cover, a range of different ages and growth levels for the breadth of diversity. We need spaces to grow food that are not treed. Mm-hmm. And we need spaces to live that are not treed. We also need to, to an extent, grow wood, cut it down and use it for things that we need wood for. So how do we balance all of those things? Because actually, maybe we don't need to grow so much new wood. I was on a team day with Forestry England two years ago down in Suffolk looking at some forestry work there. And one of the guys pointed out, oh, they're probably going to just go to hamster bed, like hamster bedding. And I was like, okay, I think something's going really wrong in one of the most precious habitats for kind of night jars and ground nesting birds. It's a really important ecological site where they're kind of trying to balance regeneration areas for, or not regeneration, but sparing areas for wildlife, such as night jars, which really do colonise felled areas of plantation, but also in terms of cropped areas mm. where you grow tree as a crop for stuff. But why are we using that for hamster bedding? I think, I think it, th- th- you know, there are questions that we need to ask going forward. How do we use wood? How do we make the use of wood and the getting rid of wood more circular, like mm. using it for burning, using it for building? Is it, it's, it seems to still be cheap to go out and buy wood to build a project, right? So like, what is it about how we kind of respect that material and use that material? There's just so much going on around us and wood, basically. So and much it's, um, it's interesting. <laughs> I think as well, it's, it's similar to what we've said on the show before, isn't it? It's having more of a connection, whether we're talking about food or whether we're talking about resources, it's having a more of an inherent connection to that resource will make you kind of value it way more if you have that part in the connection. So, Nadia, it's no secret to me you love a whittle. You like whittling. Well, I've been, I've actually been known, yeah. <laughs> and I know that the that wooden funny? spoons that you've whittled you'd care about yes. way more because you've <gasps> had the whole process of that. This is so true. The wooden spoons that I've got, in fact, I've got two spoons that were gifted to me by two very special men um, in my life, and I love them. Yeah. And then one I whittled on Boxing Day in Fontainebleau, which is a beautiful woodland south of Paris. In where? Um, and I sat by a fire on Boxing Day and whittle this extraordinarily long spoon which i use for porridge and i love it and i take care of it and i oil it 
you do oil it and you you do not like it if i put it in the dishwasher no we don't put wooden spoons in the dishwasher because it dries them out it dries them out that's what i was told aggressively if you are currently putting your wooden spoons in the dishwasher you're disrespecting your wood it'll mean eventually it'll dry and crack and you'll think i'll just go buy another one and there's the disconnection to wood there we go we've come round to it Right. So that's we... a really good like round. Oh, oh I was going to do a bit. <laughs> we Fine. both went you in go. at the same. Okay, I'll go. I was going to say. You go. Shall I? Shall we go round the world a bit? Let's leave the UK. I'm bored of it now. I'm interested. In what's happening <laughs> elsewhere? Do you mean on the show, or should we just <laughs> off and live in another country? <laughs> is this it? Both, is this how it both happens? Can be true. They're not mutually. Leave. <laughs> It's not mutually exclusive. <laughs> okay, so nerds, as I said um, at the, uh, during this episode, we've also spoken, spoken to people around the world that are doing some incredible things. And we're going to start by going to a country that we've spoken about a lot on the show. And you're going to think I'm going to have an unhealthy relationship with this country in the end, but it's called Namibia. And the reason why I wanted to feature Namibia on the episode about forestry management is because as a semi-desert country, those of you, if you Google Namibia now, just Google image it, you won't see a lot of trees. So it kind of think, you kind of think, well, surely there's not much community forestry there. But you're wrong, nerds. You're wrong. It's going on. It's going on. And I spoke to someone um, called Kenyeto Joseph from the northeast Namibia in a region called Kavango East. Um, Kenyeto has recently graduated from his studies in media and has a hand in community work as well. Morning, Ian. My name is Kenyeto Joseph. I live in Namibia. Uh, this is southern Africa. At my village where I come from, the community there is surrounded by a community forestry. Uh, majority of us, if not all of us, depend in this forestry. This might include the issue of grazing for our animals, our traditional homes that we build, the hardwoods, the firewoods that, that we normally use for cooking, the wild fruits that most of us depend. Because uh, if you check most of the communities at these villages that reside in this community forestry, these are very poor, mostly we are very poor communities that really de- depends. We don't really get enough food, but uh, we also have a sense of saying, uh, perhaps maybe if we well manage our community forestry, there are trees and fruits that our children, our grand-grandchildren that are still going to be born and they also need to go and see these trees and make sure that they also taste from the fruits, the world fruits that we are tasting today. So it's clear for the Kavango East that the surrounding community rely on forestry management just like they have done for generations. And with global populations growing, the demand for resources are also growing, which means the need to ensure illegal activity is reduced and communities are empowered and supported to manage this is essential. So that's easy for me to say, but what does that actually involve? Uh, there are a lot of uh, roles that uh, more special the committee and perhaps maybe the communities that are willing to assist us that uh, our forestry is well managed. Uh, we normally do patrols uh, once a week to make sure that uh, our community forest is well taken care by the community itself. People were, uh, have a business of just try to cut trees and, and do the illegal harvesting of these trees. We, we do this patrol to make sure that these illegal activities uh, are not happening. As much as stopping illegal activity is first on their list, Kenyetu went on to explain how, and get ready to hear this people from the UK, managing grazing from domestic animals and preventing overgrazing is also top on their list, along with the prevention of fires. There are seasons and times where we normally allow uh, people to bring in their animals. And uh, if the grass is not enough, we, 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 ne- we normally avoid that so that we keep on the same level where we don't overgraze in our community forestry. We also do the preventions of fire. This is done by the committee themselves, but we also go to an extent where we, we get an assistance from the community, more special the youth. Uh, we have been assisted sometimes by the government, the Ministry of Forest, where they give a small fund that we can use to employ temporarily the youth at our village to come and assist us in this regard. A huge thank you for Kenyatu for his time and insight in the forestry work in the northeast of Namibia. And I will say, Nadia, it was kind of, it, what's the right word? It's warming 
it warms me. <laughs> you, oh, I love community stuff. I don't know why it gives me such a buzz because I just there are challenges. It doesn't always work. There are you know problems that occur, but it just I don't know. There's something just really warm about it. I don't have another word. Whilst there's disagreements and there are divides within it, it just kind of when it works, it's just like a flower opening. It's just beautiful. Oh, Ryan. How much wine have I had? <laughs> That's really nice. <laughs> No, but I think you're right. I feel like it's, I feel like, <laughs> I feel like we're so kind of like yeah. about things sometimes in the UK or like, there's like a, there's a way of doing things that we can't name because we don't get to see ourselves. And then when you hear it's mm. happening, you're like, it's like when someone's like, you know, you're really grouchy and someone's like, do you need a cup of tea? And you're like, yes, yes. I didn't know I needed one. I didn't know I needed more community forestry to connect our forests in the UK. That is what I need. Yeah, it is. <laughs> It is what we need. It is, it is. And um, we're not going to stop there because I went over to a country. Now, um, I didn't know this, but I thought we'd go to a country called Guyana um, in South America. Um, But before I tell you about why we went, Nadia, this is who I'm talking to. So South America is not a place on the show that we've explored much of before. No, Um, it's not. We never go west. We never go west, do we? So let's go west. We go Dan or east. We go Dan or east, but we've never gone west. And west is best. So um, into the wild, we decided to go uh, to South America. And I was excited to get the chance to talk to someone called Dr. Raquel Thomas. I live in Guyana, which is the only English-speaking country in South America, and I'm also a forest ecologist, and I'm attached to the Iwakrama International Center for Rainforest Conservation and Development, and I'm the Director for Resource Management and Training here. Now, with Guyana being one of the most forested countries in the world, which I had no idea of, uh, which is standing at about 87% intact tropical rainforest, which is insane. Yes, Guyana. Oh I know. It's, oh, it's beautiful. What are we at? 13? Minus eight. Minus. <laughs> you can imagine that the, uh, both for people and wildlife, having systems in place to manage these very uh, forests is, is super important. And Raquel went on to tell me exactly why. Uh, Many people are dependent on the forest for livelihoods. And this not includes a general population in terms of people who are involved in businesses related to the forestry, but also that we have a large component of indigenous people. Over 10% of our population of Guyana is indigenous. And many of them are very forestry dependent. And indigenous people in Guyana also own title lands, or what we say ownership. They have ownership and management over their lands. So it's very important that we have systems in place in order which to support not only Indigenous people, but also support businesses related to forestry use. Because in the long term, having programs also help with people's not only their livelihoods, but also at the end of the day. It helps with conservation of biodiversity, which is inclusive of wildlife, plants, you know, and all those other things that come with biodiversity. One important factor as well um, when considering forest management is that you must have um, a very coherent system of protected areas. And this is where Iwakrama comes in. Iwakrama is part of the protected area systems of Guyana. The Iwakrama Center where I work manages over 1 million acres of intact tropical rainforest known as the Iwakrama Forest. But inherent in conservation, we also include the notion of sustainable use. This is when you sustainably use your resources that you manage to conserve it as opposed to it being full forest protection. Now there, Raquel mentioned something um, called Iwakrama. So to give more context, let's learn about what that actually is. Iwakrama is one of five protected areas in Guyana. And this area was specially set up by the government of Guyana in collaboration with the Commonwealth. When the government over 30 years ago made this offer to the Commonwealth, for the Iwakrama forest to be a space for research and development and also creating models of sustainable use to show that you can use a forest without losing it. 
Over the years, Ewokrama has developed with the full participation of, of people. And I think it's very important to acknowledge that when we talk of natural resource management, it's really about people. You must have a people-first approach or a people-focused approach. Because when you do this, you actually end up taking care of all the other things that you need to take care of the in, within the environment, including the biodiversity, the wildlife, and so on. Now, Ewokrama is a very important site. We are associated with 20 indigenous communities, and we also have a very strong partnership with those 20 indigenous communities, mostly Makushi, that's the name of the indigenous tribe that is associated with these communities. And we have a collaborative management agreement with them, which allows them to have an important say in how the Iwakrama forest is managed. And that is why I say we must have a people-focused approach if you want to look at the extended notion of conserving a forest. As I mentioned before, when we speak of conservation, we also speak of sustainable use. Now, one thing, um, and this quote was from one of our chair persons many, many years ago, and he said that conservation without funding is just a conversation. And that is one of the reasons that Iwakrama over the years have has embarked on sustainable use business activities, mainly being a sustainable forestry and also internationally certified operation, an ecotourism operation, and we also do sustainable capacity building or we have a learning services type of business where capacity building is a fundamental and important part. So these three businesses help to bring in funds to help run the Iwakrama International Center, but we also get support from the government. We get support from corporate donors and business development. We also write a number of proposals within to actually execute projects related to like research and development, um, monitoring and all those other things that are needed within a protected area of this kind and the way that we manage it. Like Kenyetu told us, managing these large areas of forest does come with its challenges. And Raquel already mentioned that finding ways of funding such initiatives is a high priority and, of course, one of the biggest hurdles. But what else in the Iroquois forest brings challenges? Um, other challenge um, that we do face with our rangers, and I must say that most of our staff at Iroquois are from the indigenous communities that we are associated with. Constantly we're faced in terms of our monitoring with some aspects of illegal activities. One of our main illegal activities that we're faced with is along one of our boundary areas is illegal mining, illegal gold mining. And that has been a challenge for us over the past few years because these are what we call small miners. So while we have our monitoring program in place, while you might get rid of them from time to time, they keep coming back because, you know, it's it's a isolated, more isolated location from where the management team is. So as soon as we leave the area, you know, people might come back into mine and so on. So I would think that probably, you know, some illegal activities is also Another challenge that we always have to come up with programs and so on to have to deal with a very important aspect of our monitoring system, of course, is collaboration, collaboration with police, the natural resources ministries, their wardens and rangers who work with in tandem with our rangers also to help us curb and reduce some of these activities might have a few aspects of illegal hunting to some extent, but the illegal mining is the most critical um, issue that, that has been having an impact on the Iwakrama forest over the years. Again, another huge thank you to Dr. Raquel thomas um, of Iroquois Forest in Guyana. Um, if you would like to learn more about the community foresting, uh, forestry work happening out there, do check out their website. It's linked in the write-up of this episode. And there is just one more country that I would like to go to, and there's a reason why. I wanted to venture to the country that has had a huge success in managing and restoring their forests, and this place is a country called Nepal. 
In the 1970s, uh, Nepal was facing a huge environmental crisis and losing forest and biodiversity at a huge rate. But in 1993, a Forestry Act was introduced, which handed over the national forest to the community groups, which has led to nearly doubling the forest cover in the country today. To tell me more about this is Community Representative and Director of Community Conservation Nepal, Biendra Mahato. So I live in Sitawan, Nepal. I'm a chairperson of the Community Conservation Nepal. Now, as I said at the beginning, the results of community forestry in Nepal are absolutely clear. But I asked Barindra, how important is it today for the people living there and for the wildlife surrounding it? Uh, community forest is very important role for how to preserve the wild animals like uh, Bengal tigers, one-horned rhinos, wild elephants, so many different type of mammals. So that we help, we help to preserve the community forest and the, those forests also help for us in our uh, local people. So it's, it's kind of the uh, ecosystem we are doing together. As Barindra says, with such key mammals living in this area and that people see themselves very much as part of the ecosystem, I asked a bit more about what that looks like on the ground. We have a very connecting, for example, in our community forest, I have also the river, right? Mm. Uh, local people, they are fishing in a river, and that river's water we also use in our irrigation system in for our agriculture land. That community forest also supported with the poor families uh, who have a cattle share their home and they went to the forestry, uh, community forest for cut their grasses, you know, for their cattle. So a lot of links to benefit for each others. Also, we are working as a like a guard, you know, to save our wild animals and those forests also supported through us. So both ways we are doing this. Okay, so as we pointed out a few times already, none of this comes without its challenges. So it's time for Brinda to share with us what the community around the Shitwan National Park are faced with when it comes to issues. And no surprises, really, what the challenges for the community are. Uh, the biggest challenges is called human wildlife conflict. Look, just last night, the crocodile the killed in the river, the one person in my villagers. Oh, I'm so, so sorry to hear that. The last year, uh, three times we are raised the tiger number, right? And uh, we also raised the rhino numbers. So at the moment, that is a very big challenge as a human wildlife conflict. So it means per year, so in Nepal, more than 20 to 25 people is killed by wild animals attack. So these are the challenges. And, uh, Local people, is very difficult to preserve their crops uh, because at the night, those uh, wild animals came to our field area and they ate our crops and we didn't get a lot of compensation from the government side. So these are main, main challenges. But community peoples are very, even we lost more than 20 to 25 people per year but still, the community is uh, happy to preserve our national park, preserve our community forest. We love our animals. So these are things uh, is more uh, good things for conservation. Many people got a job opportunity in our community forest because of tourist activities there. So many people good income sources from the tourist activities, and that money goes to the supported for the local activities. So that is very important. We save our ecosystems, we save our forests. That is good for our fresh air. That is good for our wetland is supported resulting for our groundwater. So these things are, I think, more benefit for community levels. And another massive thank you to Barinda Mahato for passing on his insights to us and to you guys. And we want to just say we send our deepest love and respect to Faguna Chowdhury, um, who lost her life to wildlife only a few days ago. 
So there we are, Nadia. There are three countries there doing community forestry and uh, sometimes, as Brinda has told us, to a great extent and risk to community life as well. There's a lot to take in there. Yeah, wow. Thank you so much, um, Ryan. There's a lot to take in. I, it, it, I, I will say when I was um, talking to Brinda when he told us about Faguna losing their life to wildlife living in the buffer zone of this national park. He said, I think what took away with me afterwards was, was the fact it was so, I said to you before we pressed record, Nadi, it wasn't blasé. It wasn't that he didn't care. I could feel the sadness in him, but it was almost normalized. And as Barindra said to us in the interview there, that they still love their wildlife. They still love where they live. It doesn't change that because it's how they've been living for many years. And I think, again, when we relate this back to the UK, if we're looking about managing forests or if we're looking about uh, restoring forests or just restoring environments and, and having with that restoring biodiversity, we have to know, we have to accept that that will and could come to some risk of conflict in some yeah, way, yeah. whatever it, it might not be as severe as losing a life of a of another human in your community, but it might come as a loss of lo losing some of your bits of livelihood. And it's important that as we do this, we really navigate what our systems are going to be to not mitigate it necessarily, but well, do that. But also, how do we deal with it when it happens? Because we want the community around our forest in any country to still have that mindset that. Barindra told us his community have that they still love the wildlife afterwards. We don't want that conflict to be, well, let's get rid of it again. And I think the the more I talk yeah. to people in the global south that are living more rurally and maybe have more connections to their kind of indigenous communities or are living in their indigenous community still, I think that's something that they still have. And I think that's where I see a lot of the success with. So I do see in the UK and maybe countries similar that we have taken a massive step away from that. But I do have a lot of hope that we in this country, in the UK, we, we can have that in our forestry management to restore our forests and to get on track with some of our targets, maybe. It gives me an idea of what's potential and projects that work really beautifully. And I, I do wonder, you know, I do, I do wonder about what does that take in terms of the unification of more of us behind backing, like something that we all support um, but also like, often skate, like ambition and a willingness to make this about people, communities and sustainability and our relationship with woodland and forest and making a decision about what we do with our trees. And I think I just feel like we lack that, but it's interesting. I mean, there are some, you know, there are some promising projects. There's a big, you know, the Borders yeah. Forest Trust. There's, there are huge ambitions up in the north where they're trying to have this great connectivity across vast expanses of, of kind of northern, northern England I do wonder whether they're missing some of the the community elements. Yeah, I think so as well. I think I, I think a key thing here is what I've seen a, a strong pattern in the people that I've spoken to there. You know, Kenyatu, uh, Raquel, and Barindra all said the same thing to me, which was the community are benefiting from this. There's multiple layers of, of reason why communities want to do this. It's because they've you know maybe have that connection that they've done it for a long time. Maybe it's a connection because they can see that benefit and actually have that livelihood support and puts food on the table, um, puts their children in education. And I think if we can see that in this country, whether that be in the form of green jobs, whether that be in the form of like you know, if people want to come and use the forest around your community, the community gets some benefit in, in form of that. I, it, I, I think if we see that, then why would we not want healthy ecosystems and forests around us? We see it, mm. you know, I, don't, I know the sentence, you know, wildlife or, or biodiversity, flora and fauna has to have some value. And it doesn't mean cash value, it doesn't mean finance, but it has to have some importance to the people there. I think we do have to have that as a, well, yeah, we want all this stuff around us because like, it brings us a hundred new jobs in the community of rangers and you know or forestry and i just think having that it's so more localized and connected and i think i think i've, I've really i believe that that is the way forward nerds i hope that gives you a rundown on forestry we did start the episode i will say quite anti-uk i think it's been a rough week for uk and those of you that are listening that don't yeah. live in the UK, you're probably like, why do these people hate their country? And I think at the moment, we're just feeling a bit of despair. But I think what's really lifted me talking about forestry management, community forestry, etc., is going to these other countries and talking to these people that are very connected to the communities that live there, very connected to the ecosystems and the forests, and seeing, like Nadia said about Costa Rica and, and, and what I said about Nepal, and seeing these countries restore to such high percentages 
there and in such quick successions as well these aren't like over like 100 a few years these are over like a few decades really turning around their percentage of tree cover which obviously is going to massively help biodiversity so i hope that gives you a nice round rundown on um forestry management community forestry maybe have a look what's happening in your local area with forestry management like wherever you live and if you want to know more about it maybe contact some organizations and if you think more should be done heck email your MP and say you want to see more tree cover happen in your area. I know London is, I think London's 27% tree cover. And I think we're aiming for more. I think Sadiq Khan trying to do a yeah, new, good job huge. at that. Um, but we're very lucky in this city of London to have a lot of tree cover. But look at, look in your local area, see what's going on and try and get involved. And protect your trees. Don't let them cut no, down. No, exactly, exactly. If a tree's getting cut down and a council puts something out, find out why and challenge it. Challenge it, absolutely. Challenge it. Don't just be like, oh, don't assume that just because something's happening by someone in a high vis, it's been allowed. At one of our earlier episodes, I remember bringing the story of some trees being cut down in the city and the community fighting it. It's happened time and time again. It, it's quite possible it is a legal yeah. activity. So fight it just because you've not got a clipboard or high vis. And if you haven't put a, put a high vis on and get a clipboard, then you're par to par. Yeah. <laughs> and then just have a piece of paper going, don't have anything on the paper. This is master bluff. Oh God, hang on the paper. Paper was once a tree. Um, just have I'm now worried <laughs> just um, pretend that you've got a tree preservation order yeah, bluff, bluff it, it. Just put it on some tinfoil and then just don't staple it into the tree sellotape it with yeah. right on the back of your hand <laughs> and leave your hand there um, right so nerds thank you for tuning into this episode I hope we've shown you a bit about how forestry can work um, around the world and how the situation is in the UK and a bit of the history of the UK as well. This is just a reminder that on October 14th, Into the Wild is doing our first live recorded show in the form of Nature Room 101 Woo! at Oxford University Museum of Natural History, October 14th, 7.30 to 8.30pm. Tickets are on sale now. The link is in the write-up of this episode or on any of our social media. Please go check it out. We'd love to see you there. Come and say hello to myself and Nadia and our awesome guests that will be joining us to have a little bit of rants about wildlife and nature. And finally, a reminder, if you want to support Into the Wild, you can do so by visiting ko-fi.com forward slash Into the Wild pod and you can tip us a couple of quid to say thank you all the money that we get goes back into the format of into yeah. the wild um so until next time nerds thanks so much for tuning in and we look forward to talking with you on the next episode bye thanks so much for listening to this episode of into the wild you can find us on social media at into the wild pod for twitter and at into the wild podcast on instagram and if you'd like to let us know your thing to go into Nature Room 101 or share a topic for Nadia and I to cover on the show, you can email us at intothewildpod at gmail.com.